and hello, movie lovers, and welcome to the show. So tonight, I actually have a very special guest. It's Brian from Mix. Well, my weekly mixtape, and it's a pleasure to actually have him here. I was actually a part of Playlist Wars doing a GTA episode with him and Gomez. Gomez was actually on my show for The Last of Us. So it's a privilege to be able to have him on here doing That Thing You Do. And I don't know if he's going to do That Thing You Do, but we're going to review That Thing You Do. So with further ado, let's go ahead and review That Thing You Do. Hey, Brian. How are you? What's up, man? How you doing? Thanks for having me. Hey, anytime, man. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. I love my weekly mixtape. I think it's the most wonderful thing to have. And it's also something that I really love is the intro when you say, what does mixtape mean to you? Because it makes that much more personal. But I'm not going to go ahead and talk about your own show. I want you to tell me about what, what my weekly mixtape is. My weekly mixtape is a podcast that I developed based on kind of an auto autobiographical nature of who I am as a person. Cause when I was growing up, anytime I did chores around the house and I earned a little bit of allowance money, what I would like to do was when I went food shopping with my parents, I would peel off by the cassettes and grab a two pack of max L XL twos. So that way I could come home and make mixtapes for my weekend. If my buddies came over they would bring their music collection over. I would have mine and we would make a mixtape together and then play video games and listen to the mixtape back. And we would kind of always do this round robin of you pick a song, I pick a song, you pick a song. So what I'm doing on this podcast is recreating that experience with fellow podcasters, friends, family, as well as in some instances, the band themselves. So to be able to go back and forth with a member of that band and collaborate on a mixtape based on their music from the band plus fan perspective. To me, that is, it's fascinating to conduct interviews that way and to kind of hear where the musicians think about a song versus where I, as a fan think about it. And then when it's me and some friends or me and other podcasters where I have a friend and I have an opinion on a song and my friend feels differently kind of figuring out how that conversation goes. So okay. it's part of basically collaborating together in order to create a piece of music together based on other people's music, that collaborative stamp that you put on a mixtape, because when you drag 50 songs into a playlist and hit shuffle, all you did was randomize a bunch of songs. But when you're making a mixtape, you're trying to tell a story. And that's what I'm trying to bring across in this show. Exactly, man. That's what I love about it. And you know what? On the fly says Captain Geek and the Shrimp Shark Shooters. Captain so. Geach. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm wearing the shirt. I don't have the Captain Geach shirt, but I got the O'Neaters shirt. I'm repping the O'Neaters tonight. Nice. So... <laughs> Here's the thing. So that thing you do is actually written by Tom Hanks. And not only that, but this movie also had a budget of 26 million and made 34.6 million at the box office, which is pretty impressive when this is actually Tom Hanks's debut movie. And I didn't know that it didn't do that well. I remember seeing advertising time advertisements back in the nineties for this movie. And you couldn't go without watching TV without seeing an ad for this, you know? No, and the thing about it was 
the song that's in the movie is the tentpole of this film. If the song, That Thing You Do, sucked, the movie would have bombed. But the song was so infectious that they could play it in this movie at least a dozen times. Mm -hmm. And it still carries you through this hour and 48 minutes. And you never get sick of it. Because that's the beauty of Adam Schlesinger, who was in Fountains of Wayne and Tinted Windows before he sadly passed, wrote this song. And... He is a genius uh, of a songwriter. He was a genius songwriter. And this song is one of the most infectious pop songs ever, let alone the 90s. <laughs> and it makes this film enjoyable because of how much of an earworm that song is. Most definitely. And it even transforms you into the 1950s and has that 1950s kind of vibe that they're going for, which is like this Beatle kind of vibe mm -hmm. mixed in with a little bit of monkeys and stuff like that, too. So that's the kind of vibe I got from it whenever I first watched the film and also whenever I first listened to the song, that thing you do whenever I and get this. I would watch this every single time I came on direct TV. I couldn't even uh, not watch this movie. I had to watch this every single time I came on the yeah, part where I actually had to record it. And then the same thing with that theme song, they literally just missed a fantasy meets real life moment because it reached number 41 on the Billboard Hot 100s. <laughs> so the wonders could have been a one hit wonder in the movie and then in the real world simultaneously, which is kind of meta and pretty cool if you think about that. It really is if you think about it in that kind of context, you know what I mean? Because it's... Uh, one hit wonders in the real world, one hit wonders in the movie itself, and it gives you a, something a little bit more relatable and that kind of meta kind of feel to it. But on the fly says, great song. I had to go out and buy the soundtrack as soon as I finished the movie. Man, <laughs> let me tell you, I, I could actually tell you a story about that. I was in college when this movie came out and I was going to school in North Carolina. So I was driving from New Jersey down to North Carolina with my buddy who lived on the same floor as us. And we drove halfway. This was around winter break. And we said, you know what? Let's just grab a hotel for the night and do the rest of the drive in the morning. Cause we left after dinner and we we're like, let's just call it a night. So we go grab a late dinner. We get back to the room. And this was back in the nineties when you could rent movies that were still in the theater at the time. And sure enough, that thing you do was on the hotel. So we said, you know what? It's midnight. Let's just pop this movie on and then we'll pass out and hit the road. First thing in the morning movie was so good. I made my buddy follow, like I drove, but I, I took us to the nearest Walmart and grabbed the soundtrack <laughs> so we could listen to it for the rest of the drive down in North Carolina. So yes, the soundtrack's amazing. And the opening song in the movie, the song that plays over the credits, right. just like the movie was directed, Tom Hanks wrote that song, which really? is a little fun. Yes. Yeah. And he was going for that pop choral sound of the fifties that was popular, like Ray Conniff and Lawrence Welk, he nailed it. It was like such a perfect opening because it Most sets definitely. the tone. Right. It also describes guy. It describes all these characters that are trying to be discovered within this movie itself, though, too. So yeah, most definitely. I think that's very impressive. I never knew that I knew that about Tom Hanks doing that. Uh, but yeah, so let's go on ahead. Let's dive into this a little bit. So, of course, it starts off in 1964. Guy Patterson, an aspiring jazz drummer, is working in his family's appliance store in Erie, Pennsylvania, when he's asked by Jimmy Manigley and Lenny Heise to perform at a talent show with their band, The Wanderers, to cover for Chad. 
So what I like is the introduction to the characters and about how close their relationship is. And it makes it that more personal to us as a viewer is also too. It also gives you this one feeling of, okay, maybe I know somebody like Lenny. Maybe I know somebody like these guys that are in this band. And especially when they're trying to come up with the name for their band and stuff like that and how they're trying to be perfect is basically what I'm thinking of when I'm thinking of the lead singer trying to be a professionist. The wonders, the wonder. Now I have being a musician and have being in several bands throughout my life. I have had that band name discussion before. And there's a reason why that thing you do is my favorite movie. That whole scene where they're, where he's writing the name down feverishly on the paper. And he's like, no, the, the wonders, the wonders. We had those moments because there was always that point in the band where you were trying to do a play on letters or a play on, on different words. And my first band name, my hard rock band was called the fourth, like four T H. And so many times we would explain that to, I'd be on the phone booking a gig and we'd get there and they'd announce us as the force, like star Wars or something like that. And it was why the O'Neaters joke resonated with me so much. Because the wonders you, I got immediately as soon as he said the <laughs> wonders, I'm like, this is going to be a total like joke through the whole movie. And it wasn't through the whole movie, but it was enough to the point where they beat it to death enough where I just love the joke. It's one of my favorites. And that's thus the t shirt. <laughs> and it makes sense, though. I mean, it makes it different. It makes it authentic. It makes it something that stands out versus something that somebody would just wind up just spelling perfectly and i think that in the 1950s you need to stand out a lot more because of that time period you have the beatles you have the monkeys you have all these bands coming out so you have to be standing out from the norm so what mm-hmm. better way to do that than with misspelling of the t-shirt or the band name itself and do it that way so that's what i got from when they were trying to be creative with it but you know i could actually tell with guy though whenever they first we first got introduced into guy is when you see him working in the appliance store, right? And you can tell that he's not into it. You can definitely tell he's not into this. He'd rather be out doing his, being a drummer for his jazz band or something like that, rather than working in his dad's appliance store. Yes, that's what his dad is accustomed to. That's what his dad is hoping for. But that's not his dream. That was his dad's dream, not his. So he's trying to live his dream through his son, which causes the conflict up every single time whenever a guy picks up a drumstick, the guy acts like a ball bag because of the fact mm-hmm. he'd rather his um, son follow in his own footsteps. Exactly. And I have seen, because this is my favorite movie, I have the directorials cut on Blu-ray as well as the original. And I've watched both many times. And what they've tried to do in the directorial cut was flesh this family relationship, guy's family, out. And they kind of did too much because the theatrical version, you get that sense immediately and they go back a couple of times and then they do the payoff at the end where it turns around and the family's on board when they're mm-hmm. live on TV. They, in the extended version, they really kept going back to it and trying to really explain that family dynamic when it was done so well and so succinctly in the theatrical version. That was one of the differences I was not a fan of in the directorial cut. Same here as well. I'm all for simplicity versus doing something that is overcooked 
It's like, okay, we get it. The father doesn't like him being in a band. He'd rather him work in the appliance store. He's living his, uh, the father's living, make, trying to make his dream live throughout through his son so the way he can inherit the store. His sister doesn't get paid for working in the store at all. So we have the establishment of these characters, so there's no need to overcook it to the point where they're beating us over the head with it. So yeah, theatrical cut over the, the extended cut is definitely the way to go for me. Well, I, I'm torn because on the flight, my buddy, Steve chimed in (laughs) direct, the the directorial cut does tell a lot more and it really, (laughs) really does. Uh, the theatrical versions an hour and 47, the director's cuts two hours and 26 minutes. Some part of the, (laughs) thanks dude. (laughs) Some part of the director's cut I love because they Mm -hmm. flesh out the relationship of the band and they show extended practice sequences. And to me, as a band person, I relate so much to those scenes. They could have did a four hour cut of just those practice scenes. And I would have been all in because you really learn about the dynamic of these four characters, the four characters that are the glue of this movie, even though they make, Guy and Liv Tyler's character, Faye, kind of the central characters with Tom Hanks, Mr. White. The band is really the focal point of this movie. And getting to see where some of the animosity builds from more in depth to me is fascinating. But there's other parts. Again, the dynamic of Guy Patterson's family, not as much. You know, things like that, I don't feel are important to the movie. But then scenes like when they're recording that thing you do in the church with Chris Isaac as playing Guy's uncle. At the end of the song, Jimmy pleads to just do one take for the B-side. And I'm shocked that's not in the theatrical version because there's a payoff to that shortly later when he says to Mr. White, but we only did one take of the B-side. I'd really like to recut it. Yes, it makes sense what he says in that scene of the movie, but seeing him plead to record that song just like just to get it on there in the first place mm-hmm. shows a little bit more of Jimmy's character because he is the talent of this group and everybody else is kind of the supporting cast. Most definitely. And yes, hell packs. <laughs> but here's the thing. I definitely agree with you on that because here's the thing. I love almost famous. Of course I did the review on that, but what I loved about that one particular scene was the fact that it looked like a VH one behind the music kind of thing, especially when the characters interview in these rock stars, because the camera takes a turn. And in this case, they could have done kind of the same thing where it feels more like a documentary kind of thing behind like a behind the music of the making of the wonders so that was something that i wish they would actually capitalized on and do so completely agreed that would honestly the fact that this movie does not have a sequel i understand that uh the movie ended they explained the future but i almost feel like there could have been that 70s sequel where they got the band back together or something else. Or like a reunion a, tour or something. Some, something, yeah. Like, I feel like there's... Because I just loved these characters in this film so much. But at the, also saying that so many sequels suck that I almost don't want them to ruin to what 
for me is a perfect film. So, right, especially waiting this long to do a sequel. I've seen where sequels to movies uh, over thirty years it doesn't do well and doesn't receive well. So yeah, I think this works perfectly as a one-off versus doing several sequels. To be honest with you, um, but yeah, then even with uh, Tina, which is Guy's girlfriend, she has zero interest even in any of Guy's passions or anything like that either. She's just there just because Guy is there and because of the fact that he wants her to support her, but he's forcing her basically to try to support him. But it's hard to to do that when somebody shows zero support of you. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah that again the directorials cut dives way deep into the story between um uh tina and guy and i feel like they that part almost kind of was too much in the directorial version because the movie version tells that story again much more succinctly and i think when they pared it down that was a less is more moment for me in the movie, but they really stretched out Tina and the dentist's relationship. And like, I, I get it, but I felt like those scenes were unnecessary in the directorial's cut. Exactly. That's actually how I feel though, too, because we get it. She's going to be cheating on him with the dentist. And I think that all you have to do is put her in the dentist chair, him closing the blinds and that's it. That's all you have to know. And But for them to do, oh, look, we're going to play tennis today. Oh, look, we're going out on dates while the guy is on tour. Mm -hmm. I'm like, that was a little too much. Too yeah. much. Let's see here. We actually have something from, oh, my God, I love that song. The band reuniting would be the perfect premise to redo Almost Famous. Interesting. Uh, hmm, that's actually an interesting take. I honestly think that they ended it right. No sequel needed. And then I love that song also said that he agreed, but you know, I think the simple thing to do is the way they did it. The theatrical cut with Tina is like just showing her the dentist chair. She's cheating on him. She has no interest in guy anymore. Guy goes on about his business and does what he does. They summed it up in the theatrical version in two scenes. She smiles at the dentist. They cut the scene. Then when guy calls her, she simply just says, Oh, I've, I've got, you know, a dentist appointment. And that told the story. That's all you needed. And it was able to move back to the music because I felt like you don't need to develop Tina's character anymore. No, I know it's Charlie Theron and, and she's a big name. And this was one of her first well, roles, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. This is like Charlie Theron whenever she was first starting out. Right. This is not like the one, the per, the girl, the woman that we know now. Right. And she was not a household name compared to now. So I understand what they were trying to do. They were just like, oh, this is going to be the next big star, and we need to go ahead and put her as, into as many scenes as we can, so maybe somebody will notice her, probably, which is understandable. Yeah, and she certainly made a great career out of it. So She definitely did. Atomic Blonde, the list just goes on <laughs> with that. But, you know. Um, but, yeah, another thing, too, is we actually have this other thing where Chad – um, is basically jumping over these, <laughs> um, you know, just basically just jumping over parking the, the parking meters. Thank you. And, you know, and then all of a sudden he breaks his arm because of this. And then that puts guy in the hot seat to be able to drum. Right. And, and you know, that's one thing that I thought that was really interesting. Okay. So back in the 1950s, breaking your arm, jumping over to parking meters would be so rock and roll for that 
era to where you, they're like, okay, guy, well, how did you get your role in the being in the drum? We know Chad was the original drummer. Well, Chad decided he wanted to jump over parking meters, and then next thing you know it, he winds up breaking his arm, and now I'm here. So that's yeah, like so rock and roll for the 50s. I know, and the directorials cut is the scene that I wish they left in the theatrical version because he's just laying there on the ground and they're just going, Chad, are you okay? And he's like, just destroyed. Like I, it, it was like almost a family guy type of humor. And yeah, it, I just laughed so much at that. I was actually bummed that that didn't make the theatrical cup. I, I understand it, it was an hour and 47 as it is, but the extra 30 seconds would have just been right. They could have shaped off some points off of the Tina storyline and just have that one little spot there open for that, for a comedic timing. I've been sold for that. But then you also have this moment now with the band where they're now finally in the talent show. And now a guy is over there taking, taking Chad's spot. And, you know, this is actually one of my favorite scenes because now, he, you know, he's trying to figure out this band. He's trying to figure out his friend's band because he has all he knows is jazz. So he's trying to figure out the tempo, even whenever they're during rehearsal, mm-hmm. you know, they're, he's trying to figure that out. And the funny thing that I love was love Tyler's uh, character in this, though, too, especially the thing with the uh, sandwich. He goes, well, I don't want no balloony sandwich. And and they made it so comical with that. And then he goes, then he bangs into her sister's car. He goes, oh, I tinged it a little bit. And basically it's a sexual reference to them, which I thought was really subtle, but also funny though at the same time. So I thought that was really uh, some comical stuff within that with they. Definitely. And the thing I love about that scene where the band plays on stage for the first time, Tom Hanks actually had, Tom Everett Scott, Steve Zahn, Jonathan Sage, and Ethan Embry do a month-long boot camp to learn how to play their instruments. And I talked about this on a podcast, on my podcast before. If you're in a movie and you are performing songs, if you're just doing the, with the bass, where your hands never move, you're not going to sell it. And if you're singing, you're not going to sell it. So you think about a movie like, Oh brother, where art thou? Clooney sells that he's singing. You believe that's his voice. Same thing with the movie Rockstar. Marky Mark sells that he is this eighties hairband singer. You believe it. And Tom Everett Scott, you know, playing drums. If he was just up there kind of doing a robot thing, you would not have believed that character. So he had to actually learn to do the boom, pop, pop, boom, pop, boom, pop, pop. And he had to know how to do that. And without that, like, cause it, you're watching him play and kind of the look on his face. And if, if I really want to get into it and be, you know, Tom Everett Scott, he gets into it. You know, he's got the drums on and everything else, but the, again, the guitar player, they had to know where the chords were because if not, they're just sitting there on the G the whole time. And you really need to be able to sell, yes, Val Kilmer in the doors, another great example of uh, an actor in, encapsulating that singer role. But, and then Ethan Embry doing, which I absolutely love his character name in the movie, TB Player, 
which is the bass player. That is his actual character name in the film. Being a bass player, we never get love. So that little subtle jab that he doesn't even get a name in the movie <laughs> is the most musical thing. As soon as I saw that in the credits, I burst out loud laughing the first time I saw the movie. And that is why I fell in love with it. Little things like that. The, the attention to detail, if you will, to really nail this stuff. That's what I like about it, though, too. It's relatable. It's attention to detail. Not only that, but if you're in a band, you can actually notice the little details and stuff like that. And you can actually feel like an audience member who's watching The Wonders for the first time, just as these people from the 1950s are watching them for the very first time. So it's us engaging into this uh, move. To be honest with you, it doesn't even feel like a movie anymore. It feels like that we're in this with them watching this band for the first time coming up from where they are in this little Pennsylvania town and we're watching them perform on stage for the very first time. So it's just like us, us as an audience member witnessing this for the very first time, just as the people standing up and dancing for the very first time. hundred percent. And that feeling of an audience being receptive to your song, the look of joy that they were sharing with each other. Like when, um, uh, Oh my God, my brain just turned off for a second when Lenny turns around and says to guy, what is happening? Like those moments in a band when, a, when the first time that a crowd relates to you, you're pulled into that moment. And as a musician, I related to that so much. I felt like that scene was something I had lived in my life. And I'm sure every musician not every, but a lot of musicians probably feel the same way because that just feeling of elated joy when someone's receptive to what you're playing, especially if it's an original. So exactly, it, it, that was just such a joyous moment in the film. For me too, though, because it's like, what is going on? And guys just doing his thing, doing his upbeat tempo. The lead scene, uh, you know, you actually have, uh, not yeah, you have Jimmy who's just looking at him like, what the hell? This is not what I wanted. And guys just doesn't care. He's just going at it. And it just works. It had that rock and roll kind of flavor, kind of popish sound that they were needing for it, even though it's supposed to be a slow tempo. And you basically, if you looked at the talent show, everybody was falling asleep. Right. That talent show. They're the ones who brought it back to where it needed to be. Mm -hmm. and, and, they, and they sent it yeah. through the roof. Oh, for the record, I was holding up the soundtrack because I saw uh, Jason Palladino chimed in about, I want to listen to the soundtrack. So I, I held it up as a shout out to him. What's up, dude? <laughs> I need to get that soundtrack, to be honest. Oh, with my you. God. It's so good. It's so good. Because I downloaded the almost famous soundtrack because I love the movie so much that I'm like, I need to buy the soundtrack. There's no way I can't have it. You know, but yeah. let's see. And oh, my uh, God, I love this song had mentioned yeah. that almost famous another example of them selling those characters and, and selling the performance so yeah speaking of really selling that moment they really sold that they didn't know how to perfectly fake their singing when they're part of the hollywood filming of the shrimp shack shooters oh. yeah that that was hilarious because to me honest with you they're like oh they they make us look like we're monkeys and all of a sudden I'm thinking of the band the monkeys because that would be something that the monkeys would wink, do wink. Yep. So yeah, definitely. Exactly what that was a wink, wink, nut. And to me, that scene, Captain Geach and the Strip Shack Shooters, is part of that joyous comedy. 
how often can you talk about a comedy that makes you genuinely laugh out loud? That is something you could sit down with for the most part with your children and watch. That is right. genuinely a hearty PG to PG 13 film that makes you laugh. There aren't many, but this movie has such genuine laughter, especially if your children have any interest in music because exactly there's this, there's this innocence to the characters and the innocence of the era it's set in that allows them to keep the jokes in a PG realm because that was what life was. I'm assuming as, as my parents maybe have said, that is what life was like back then. So. Right. Exactly. And that's actually how I feel though. This is actually captures the 1950s in a lighthearted way. No filthy language, no, nothing that's out of the way or anything like that. This is a perfectly well-balanced film that you can enjoy with your family for the very first time and laugh out loud at little small moments so, yeah, I definitely agree with you on that. And then there's uh, the other thing, too, where basically a guy, one of the fans winds up asking, well, when's the record going to come out? And guys looking at them like, is there going to be a record? Is there not going to be a record? What's going on here? Now we have people want, we were just doing this as like a little gig. And now we have to take it serious. And we can even relate to that as like podcasters, though, too, in a sense where basically you know, it takes somebody to say, well, when are you guys going to actually do something bigger? And they're like, oh my God, I got to do something bigger. What, what, what do I have to do? <laughs> and so it goes into that whole time. I'm blowing up like, wait, I got to take this thing serious now because people are expecting it. And well, so the, therefore, the, yeah. Yeah. I was going to say the part where the glowing Liv Tyler as Faye, she's just magical mm -hmm. in this movie. She's such, such a lovely character. And you could really, she's such a warm character. You really feel her persona when she's selling the records and there's a line of people begging for it. That was the part of the movie where I'm like, that's Hollywood. That's magic. That's, that's, that's about as real as star Wars. I've, I've had CDs at gigs and people don't line up to buy them. It just doesn't happen. <laughs> so no. that was the only part of the movie where I was like, be realistic. People would have came up, picked up the album, flipped it around a couple of times, put it back down said, oh, you're selling it for a dollar. Would you take 50 cents? That's that's what really happens. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, it's hard to even do a CD now, too, for me, for people to care. So because I was like at Walmart's one time, like this one guy comes up to me, you want to buy a CD for five bucks? Um, it's my rap album. I'm like, yeah, man, I'll support local music, you know, see what see what you got on there. So, yeah, uh, five bucks. Yeah. And, he, and them doing a $1 pop is actually a smart way of actually getting your music out there. So I thought that was pretty neat. What happened to that? Okay, so Jason Paulino, uh, yeah. But this was the 50s, the introduction of rock and roll, and everyone wanted a piece of it. Yep, You're right, definitely. yes, 100%. I, I just liken it to my experiences, but maybe back then if you had a record, that's all you needed for people to think you were famous. Um but I think they caught on to it by the time I was doing it in the nineties and beyond, but yeah, it, it, I mean, yes, look at the reaction to the Beatles. Exactly. That's what this band is supposed to be. This mm -hmm. is like the American version of that Beatles, except they're the one hit wonder version. They never get past their Ed Sullivan moment. Like the Beatles, it exploded the Beatles on, but the groundwork that was laid for this band throughout the movie of the impending implosion was going to happen no matter the success. And that's why Johnny was able to go on and take his talent to play tone as well for like the rest of his career. Okay. 
that's that's actually true. I didn't think about it like that in that kind of context though either. So yeah, that's definitely one hundred percent. Um, another thing though too is I like how they're like, well, who's going to record it? How do we do this? Well, there's this record booth down, down the street. He goes, yeah, but that's only for birthday parties. Where do we go? He goes, <laughs> you know, I have an Uncle Bob that's actually in the industry. And I like how Lenny looks at him. You mean your uncle who does church recordings and records in the church? He's going to let us do that? And I like how the Uncle Bob actually basically winds up taking them in as a family and winds up recording their uh, their CD, well, not CD, but their record. And I thought that was really impressive. You actually have one person that has faith in them, and it's his Uncle Bob. That's the only person in his family, in uh, Guy's family, that supports him. So I thought that was really touching. Yeah, and from a music nerd perspective, drums give you that amazing sound quality because you've got that reverb and you've got mm-hmm. that beautiful live sound in a church. So for me, I was like, yeah, that, because again, in the fifties, you're recording into one microphone. Did you notice they were kind of surrounding this? So this was a true 1950 style recording and getting that reverb was the only way to get it was to get it naturally. So to be in that carnivorous church is what got that sound that they were looking for. And Chris Isaac, again, fantastic role because knowing he is who he is as a musician, the lines kind of hit at a metal level as well, which I think was perfect casting on Tom Hanks part for that. Definitely. But yeah, that's also too, they went to a playing uh, gig at Velopinos, a local uh, pizza parlor. When a fan asked him for a record, they decided to record the song. Like I said, with the 45s, local talent promoter, Phil Horst notices the band promising to get them on the radio within 10 days. Lenny convinces the band to sign with him. And this is the part that I thought was hilarious because he got this guy, Phil pulls up in an RV and said, Hey kid, he, if he had like a, if was, this guy was like short and stocky and had like a cigar in his mouth. He was like, Hey kid, I'm going to tell you this right now. I'm going to make you big kid. Come on, come over here into my, into my uh, RV over here. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to make you big. I'm going to make you big stars. And I could just sit them like, uh, I don't know about this. I don't, and you know, I, I don't blame the lead singer being questionable about this. Like, I don't know about this, and, but I like how Phil just takes the initiative. Look, if you don't believe me within 10 days, tear up the contract, no skin off my bones or anything. There's no money involved in this yet. I'm just believing you guys. I'm going to try and get you some airplay. See, see what happens. See what pops. See what doesn't pop. And I like that whole entire feel of Phil. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this whole scene to me, it, well, it delivers the my favorite line in the movie. A man in a really nice camper wants to sign our band and put her. So you're signing, you're signing. We're all signed. That to me is one of the funniest parts of the movie. Because they're like <laughs> feeding them stew off the like kind of like little stick, and they're all sitting there and they try to vilify jimmy's character because he is the skeptic but in reality he was being very smart being cautious about his songs but it does take away from kind of the so in a way the movie's light tone vilifies that nature but at being in a band there does need to be that voice of reason Mm -hmm. so to me there was this kind of swing with it where I was laughing at the dynamic of the discussion, but also understanding that there's more to this character because of the fact that every band sometimes lives on these fantasies and he's the one trying to ground it in a little bit of reality. 
but it does kind of vilify him in the process. But that kind of does, again, add to who he is with Faye throughout the movie and, and the character. So right. there's a lot of layers to him, and that's the point. There should be. You see, there was times that I was siding with him, and there was signs, there was parts that I was like, you're doing a total ball bag. But in this situation, everybody's <laughs> on this, but everybody on this is on this high level where it's like, okay, give me a pin right now. I'll sign right now. And then here's, and you need that level of reality of like, hey guys, I don't know about this. Uh, these are my songs. These are not your songs. We're just, you guys are just singing my songs. So we need to have some even ground here. And I like how Lenny's over there just like, you know what? Give me a pen. I'm just ready. I'm ready to do this. And guy's ready. Everybody's ready. All except, Everybody's all in with their poker chips, all except him. And I don't blame him. This is a lot of stuff to uh, go through. And then even uh, basically you have Faye who said, well, did you talk to a lawyer first before yeah. even signing a contract? He goes, no, nah, we didn't do that. <laughs> the the this band could not have been more perfectly cast. Steve Zahn is the perfect Lenny. His comedic approach to this, that kind of goofy, just kind of living life by every moment kind of guy is so perfect for that role. And a lot of musicians have been in a band with a Lenny and with a guy and with a Jimmy and with a TB player because these characters are so relatable. Right. And that's actually how I feel. I'm actually, I think if I was in a band, I would be like Lenny, to be honest with you, because I could see aspects of myself in Lenny to the point where I'm like, yeah, that would be me. I would be the one who's like, Hey, what's up? I'm in a band. How are you doing? Yeah. I would, I'll be like, I'll be probably be like that guy, you know, because with, that's who, right. And for me, I would literally be, there's a piece of each band member that I personally <laughs> relate to. And I would be like one piece of all four, because there's that I'm in a band thing. I used to do that all the time when I was single 20 something years ago, prior to my wife. Like that was like, Hey, I'm in a band. It, it didn't work. Right. But that was, it, that was just the thought process. Like, Hey, right. it worked for Lenny, you know, exactly. It could work for me. So yeah. what's going on? How you doing? But yeah. Uh, when he gets married here. in Vegas, exactly. That's yep. a, that is exactly what his character is all about. Like where he's like got the poker chips. He's like, thank you. Thank you. I'm so happy you guys are here. Like, this is the happiest day of my life. Here. Here, take some. <laughs> and then even when it like, just look, I'm going out with the Playboy bunny. Look. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I just thought it was funny though. Uh but, you know, then after that, Phil gets the song on Pennsylvania radio and books them at a rock and roll showcase concert in Pittsburgh. And I like how Guy go whenever he books them, Guy's like, look, uh, I have to close shop for my dad. He goes, I like that about you. You're modest. Okay, I'll let you do that. And Guy hasn't taken into perspective. I'm going to Pittsburgh. This is happening. It's not until he looks at that stage. And he asked the guy, asked the people who are cleaning up, how many people can fit in this? Oh, about 2,500. And then that's when the reality hits. And I'll tell you, the first time that that song comes on, on the radio, and you see Faye with the, you know, she's walking down the street, putting the earbud in, listening to the radio, and everyone's listening to their radios. That scene where they end up in Guy's parents' shop, and they're dancing around, 
and Lenny's high-fiving the the stand. That is my favorite scene in the movie. That is every musician's biggest dream to get played on a major radio station. And I have been played on some New Jersey and New York stations with my older bands. And anytime that happened, that feeling in the movie is real. They captured it. That is, and if you're, even if you're just sitting there looking at the radio, twiddling your thumbs, what happened in that scene is happening in your head when you hear your own music on the radio. So to me, that scene is what makes me love the movie so much because of that just joy. It was so innocent and so like they were literally like grabbing every radio in the, in the place, plugging them in, trying to tune them all out, like, so they could hear this moment. And it's, it's just, it makes me happy thinking about that friggin' scene in the movie because they played it off so well. Definitely. Let's see here. Great scene. Uh, when they hear it on the radio for the first time. Yeah. Oh my God. I love that song. Similar scene in the movie Selena. And I love how real that one feels too. Definitely. Yeah. And the thing that I liked about this though was, okay. I like the fact that, Oh my God, we're being played on the radio and they're all running. And then they go into the guy's shop. He's about to sell somebody a washing machine. And all of a sudden news breaks. Your song is on the radio. Next thing you know, they're all cranking up the radios. The father's over there going, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> and finally, his mom cranks up the radio, and she's happy for them. She's thrilled for them. The father's like, oh, crap. I got to hire my daughter now to do what I'm <laughs> because that's what he's afraid of. He's afraid of change. Not only is he afraid of change, but he's afraid because of the fact that it's like, oh, my dynasty, my name cannot live on now through my son. Now it's through my daughter. And now that chapter of my son is over with. This is going to be his new thing now. Definitely. And I'm glad they didn't flesh that out too much because, again, that's a downer on the movie, that 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 dynamic. And I'm glad they cut it back to as simple as it needed to be for the feel-good part of the movie because you do lose some of that happiness when they kind of go back and kind of hammer home how the dad is struggling with this. And I, I kind of like that those scenes after the radio and the Pittsburgh, the Pittsburgh and the Pittsburgh, the Pittsburgh and the Pittsburgh <laughs> with that, 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 when he's got the cigarette hanging out of his mouth, yeah. that, that scene in the extended cut of the movie is longer. And I, I, I appreciate that because that is like their first time playing a live gig in front of an audience. And I am, I had the good fortune in 2009 to open for Blues Traveler at a theater in upstate New Jersey at the New Jersey Bergen Pack in Englewood, New Jersey. And I got to show up at four o'clock in the afternoon for soundcheck. And I walked into that empty theater and I walked up on stage and the band was up there. I introduced myself and I had to do soundcheck to an empty theater that held 2000 people. And that scene and that thing you do when they're looking out at those empty chairs, this was 2009. So I had obviously seen that thing you do many and many and many a times. When I was standing there, I literally thought back to this movie and said, they nailed that scene. Like I'm looking out at this empty thing. I actually have a picture on my computer of just the microphone looking out at the empty Bergen pack. I wanted to remember that moment for the rest. So I took a picture of it. And then three hours later, 
I played a 20 minute acoustic set by myself in front of 2000 people opening for blues traveler. And it was awesome. One of the most exhilarating 20 minutes of my life. So seeing that unfold and that thing you do truly resonated with me being a musician. So I guess this movie is my favorite because of so many things I can connect to it. If that makes sense. Yeah, most definitely because you have that nervousness of, Oh, I'm going to be performing in front of 2,500 people. And this is not going to be an empty theater anymore. This is me. This is my dream. This is what's happening to me. And then the same retrospect to guy looking out into the audience as well into an empty theater, soon to be a packed theater. So yeah, I could definitely understand the, the relatability behind that because of the fact that this is your dream, this is what you want, and this is also what guy wants too. So yeah, I can definitely see why this is your favorite movie of all time, and I don't blame you. This movie is fantastic. It's very relatable. This is hands down one of my favorites that uh, that I watch every single time that's on direct TV. I even have a special part in the uh, my genie where I basically just have it on record. Nice. And so all I got to do is just pull it up. But I bought the extended cut recently. So, you know, I have that. But yeah, but we also have to go through technical difficulties when we're on stage, right? So, yes. however, they are booed off stage afterwards. Phil brings a desperate guy to meet with with Mr. White, an A&R representative for Playtone Records, who offers a contract and becomes their manager. He re-spells the band's name as The Wanderers, offers them advice on style and presentation. Definitely. That scene where they introduce Tom Hanks, Mr. White, that's the big leagues. That's every musician's dream. So I have nothing to compare that to. Uh, I did see that. Oh my God. I love this song. It chimed in. He wants to see that picture. I will make sure to post that soon to my Twitter. So that way you could see it. it it's um, for anyone who's been watching or listening, but that moment, I have nothing to compare it to, but I can only imagine the what's going through their heads during that scene. And the thing about Playtone records, again, jumping into the real world. If you look at the CD, I'm going to hold it up close. It is actually a Playtone Records disc. And Playtone Records became a real record label. And they released the soundtrack to That Thing You Do in 1996. Both Soprano soundtracks, Bring It On, Josie and the Pussycats, Band of Brothers, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, The Truth About Charlie, and Starter for Ten were all soundtracks released on the actual Playtone Records label. So think about that where the movie jumps into the real world and it's another cool, fun fact about it. Right. Another meta kind of feel to it. And also, yes. too, I never knew that I actually owned the Sopranos soundtrack. Look at the I'm CD a next time fan. and you'll see the play okay. tone. Okay. I'll definitely do that because I never noticed that before. So, yeah. Thank you for that. I do appreciate no that little that little nugget there. That's a but, part of the music nerdery inside my head. I think. <laughs> hey, it's all good. I love, I love your sweating uh, nerdiness when it comes down to music. So that's what I love, but dude. Okay. So with Tom Hanks being introduced 15 minutes into the movie, I think it's fantastic because you have a slow build where you have them going on this ride with Phil and then it kind of goes on a halt because of the fact they got booed and they thought that this was going to be the last ride. Then it's like, oh, wait, now we actually have a big town manager now that's going to take us on board for this rest of this journey. And you get to see how the music industry 
basically starts changing them and making them start having conflicts with each other, even though they don't need to have conflicts with each other, and how they try to change Guy's look and everything else. So I like how Tom Hanks comes in with that little smile that he has, being all nice and friendly to them and things like that. But in his role, this is the business. This is his thing. He has people to answer to. They're yes. just some. They're just basically dinner on a serving line, and he's trying to serve them uh, the best. Trying to serve the other managers that they have. So that's the way the way I see it. Whenever I look at Tom Hanks's character, yeah, Tom Hanks basically plays the businessman, like you said, of this, and his role in this is to shape this band into the image of Playtone Records. And there are a lot of labels that when they bring on artists, they sign them to developmental contracts. And those contracts are doing exactly what Mr. White did for this band, giving them a style, giving them a look, giving them a trademark, which <laughs> these glasses, believe it or not, not by not by design are kind of similar to his. Uh, they're just my favorite sunglasses. But anyway, uh, <laughs> that. His serious stoic nature with that little bit of a grin is so perfectly played because you never know whether to love or fear him because he could take it all away from the band just like that. And, right. you know, not to foreshadow, but at some point that that does come to fruition. Shades. Shades. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, it does because you, it, basically he's the god to them because of the fact that he's going to be the one who puts food in their stomachs and because of the fact that they're paying him, them now. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. So they have no choice, but to go along with this and including insisting that guy always wears his sunglasses, ask him to join the Playtone tour of Midwestern state fear uh, fears and suggest Jimmy's girlfriend, Faye joined the tour ma maintaining their wardrobe. So wardrobe mis mistress is what he calls her. Yes. And I'm wondering if this is where they decided, you know what? Tom would be perfect for Elvis for the Elvis movie, because I could see a little bit of the Connell in Tom Hanks in this movie a little bit as well. So I was wondering if maybe they might've actually picked something up from that. And I'm like, okay, he would be perfect for the Elvis biopic. Interesting. Interesting. I didn't think about that. But what do you think about how he plays off that narrative, though? Do you see him as the Connell type person or do you see him basically just being this shark where he. To answer that, I have to split it because <laughs> in the theatrical version. He is meant to you're never not you're not supposed to know in the theatrical version if he is love or hate. You it's supposed to <laughs> be scary but he's helping us but so there was that dynamic but in the directorial cut when you see that he has a partner in Howie Long and you see him smiling and laughing with Howie Long and being a human it humanizes him so much that it takes away from that intensity he has for the rest of the movie and I think they pulled that scene because they didn't want to humanize Tom Hanks character they wanted him to always be seen as you don't know what to mm -hmm. expect with him and he would sit there and oh exactly yes because he like when he talks to guy he under him and guy had a nice dynamic together where Tom Hanks understood where Mr. White understood that guy was the smart one in the band and that 
because he says it at the end and he goes through and says the talent, the basket case, you know, all this stuff, kind of like the breakfast club. It wasn't the basket case. I was thinking of that movie, but anyway, (laughs) you think about that. Tom Hanks knows this band. They are literally band one, two, three, four, five to him. Cause he's got the whole playtone galaxy that they're out on tour with. So he's just part of these other bands and they're looking for a certain sound and style. And that's why when you get to that tour and you get to introduce to the Cordettes and all these other bands, they really nailed the fifties. Because if you listen to fifties music, I'm a big fan of doo-wop and a big fan of, of beach music and the old fifties style. Every single style they hit is right on the money between the Cordettes being like that Motown type sound. You had the guy that was, that sang Mr. Downtown, which is supposed to be your, not Tom Jones. Cause that's a couple decades later, but that almost Frank Sinatra kind of guy with the wink, wink and the guns, the finger <laughs> guns, and right. you get all these different. And that is a snapshot of the music of that era, which is why I love this soundtrack so much. I actually have songs from this soundtrack on my actual 1950s playlist because they did such a fantastic job. You wouldn't know they weren't real 50 songs. Right. And that's the authenticity of this soundtrack because of the way that it feels. I grew up on 1950s and 60s music with my mom. And then after that, my uncle taught me ACDC in the seven with 70. So basically I went through a whole music lesson of the fifties and sixties with my mom. And then I went transitioned <laughs> into seventies to nineties music. So yeah, I, I, I really learned to appreciate different aspects of music through the genres of music throughout the year. So yeah, I could definitely see that. My first initial thought was Tom Jones because of the fact that's what I was accustomed to, even though it was before it's time. So yeah, I could definitely see Mr. Downtown being like a Frank Sinatra type, even a Tom Jones type uh, person though, too. So, and you can definitely tell Tom put that little bit of flavor in that character though, with those, uh, yes. with those two. But yeah. Um, so after that winds up happening, let's see here, TV fall. Okay. So during the tour, the wonders meets the other acts, learn about the business and becomes better performance. <laughs> performers jimmy spends time with the singer while the bassist tb falls for a member of a girl group the charlinas i think that's how you say it right chantelines oh think. the uh chantelines yeah chantelines yeah. yeah and so that yeah. the hold my hand hold my heart where ethan Embry's doing the kind of doing the whole like to the dancing like they are as they're performing mm-hmm. it to me in the theatrical version they kept it at a perfect amount in the director's cut, they really extended it and kind of drew it out a little too much. Diane Dane, Diane Dane is the perfect Johnny character for her style of music. And she is what Johnny is meant to be the lone star. And that's what he ends up becoming. So the fact that, Johnny and Diane Dane were having that dynamic. They were seeing eye to eye on a musical and artistic level, which was getting flirty or however you want to call it. And meanwhile, the good girl back from Erie, Pennsylvania, Faye was more, you could see throughout the whole movie aligning with guys character. Like to me, when they ended up together, it was not a big bombshell drop to me. It was very much 
teased and calculated throughout the whole movie. The chemistry between those two characters was very understandable and it was very on the nose. And I feel like that was done on purpose because they're more humble and their, their characters are very similar and in a line. Whereas Johnny's character is more like the Diane Dane type. Mm -hmm. I can definitely see that. And at that time though, too, TB is also going through his own emotions as well with him signing up for the army because he's only there for the end of summer. And then he yep. winds up doing these push-ups up in the cafe because him and Guy were originally supposed to hang out together. And the next thing you know, it yep. he winds up uh, hanging out with the army crew. And then from there, he goes to Disney World, the dish ditches the band to go to Disney World to ride on a Disney ride with Mickey Mouse and all them. And then... <laughs> um, taking pictures, selfies with the guys. And then that leaves, of course, now an open range for um, Tom Hanks's character to say, hey, look, you guys are having problems here. Where's your bass player at? We can't, and you can definitely tell guys stressed out because at that time too, he got hung over. And because he went out, he didn't remember anything that his manager even told him. And they say, you know, he wakes up, then his manager, Tom Hanks, calls him. He goes, hey, look, you got, you need to get over to the studio. We have a problem. Your basis is not even here. Mm -hmm. And Guy can't even find the stage. He's in total disarray. And then finally he finds it, and then he's like, well, what are we going to do? So right then and there, they make an executive decision to replace TB as the bassist. Bummer, man. I like TB. Uh, Wolfman, <laughs> I mean, he's the antithesis. He is the session player, extremely talented, but that angry look was the polar opposite of what the wonders were, the youthful innocence, which is why when they're performing live on TV and they cut to the bass player at Wolfman or whatever the hell his name is, they yeah. immediately go, okay, next, 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 because he's got this, you know, real smolder Wolfman, right? He's got the smoldering <laughs> look and it's the actual opposite of what they're going for. They, they're going for. Because they're supposed to be these teens that are innocent. Yes. And so they're like, okay, well, we're not going to try and pay attention to the fact that we replaced TB. So we're going to cut to Wolfman. And after Wolf, we introduced the band with Wolfman, we're going to quickly saying, oh, you didn't see anything. You're going to do John Cena. We're going to John Cena you. <laughs> and then we're going to go switch over to uh, the rest of the original members. And I'm actually surprised the parents didn't mention, where's TB at? Yeah, they didn't care. They <laughs> no, were... <laughs> all they cared about was Guy. Because yeah, yeah. That was the turning point for me. I'm like, okay, you guys are now fully supporting uh, him. And then all, my, my other favorite part, and I know I skipped it, was when the sister goes, so does that mean I get paid now? <laughs> so, <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, let's see here. We actually have something from Jason. Uh, Diane Dane is the uh, caution to Jimmy. He thinks that she is uh, representative of everything he wants, but she warns him away from the life he thinks he wants. Right. I, I agree with that. And that's, but again, Jimmy becomes her anyway. Cause if you watch what I have, he goes on to just do it anyway. So even the caution is there. It doesn't resonate. It doesn't hit through to him. Nothing gets through to him. Cause if, if, if it got through to him, you would never see the, I quit. I quit. I quit. <laughs> like that part is his obnoxiousness coming out. And look, I have been in bands that have broken up and it is just as ugly as they portrayed it. It's not cool when a band breaks up. It's as 
big as a relationship. It's as big as a marriage. It's bands become family, whether they want to or not. And like they said, too, they've only been together for like two months. And I like the scene where the blue singer's talking over to Guy. He goes, well, that doesn't make a difference where you're in a band. You're a family no matter how how long you've been in it. You're in it for life. And if you can't get... Yep. And I thought that was, I really love him as an actor. I really loved him in this one. I really believe that he was that blues jazzy kind of guy who was trying to talk guy into it. Hey, look, if you do not snap your bandmates out of it, you're going to lose your friends and you're going to lose your band members to the point where there's no band. Well, I'll tell you, Del Paxton, that song Time to Blow from the movie Mm -hmm. was actually written by Steve Tyrell, who is a jazz blues player and singer, as well as Robert Mann. That song I actually have on my jazz playlist along with Coltrane and Burrell and Oscar Peterson and Art Blakey. That Del Paxton song sounds like that 1950s hard bop jazz that was so popular. And to me, there is something so magical that they were able to capture that old school jazz song because that song Yes, it's it's exactly right. It, it that some bands that's two minutes too long. That jazz song is so amazing, and again, it brings that layer of authenticity to this movie. When you see a guy sit down in the studio and he just starts playing that drum beat, you feel it because he's all <laughs> alone in that studio. You feel the tension and then the playing, and then Dell just kind of walks in he goes, what was that beat you were doing? And he kind of sits down at the piano with him and they jam together. I get goosebumps just thinking about that scene because it's just, that's that guy's idol. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, you know, I again, I had the chance to open for Blues Travel. They're one of my favorite bands in the world. And getting to go up to them and get a picture with them and talk with them about how much their music meant to me and then get to share the stage with them that night. It it was like that moment in this. I didn't, unfortunately, didn't get them to come record in the studio with me. I wish I did, uh, but I didn't. But that moment of Guy and Del Paxton jamming together, that's like a, a, a lightning a in the be- bottle. It's a beautiful moment in the movie for me. For sure. And I can, here's the thing I idolize like Aerosmith, Jonathan Davis, stuff like that. And I can just imagine them coming up to me. Hey, look, man, let's, let's try that thing you were trying. Like, yeah. really? Yeah. Should we invite the no no no? It's just us. It's just us. Just us. Let's make this a duo. Let's, let's, <laughs> that 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 to me was really a special moment for a guy where he's like, you know what? I'm having this rough day, but it's gonna be okay. I may not get what I wanted, but in the end, at least I have my moment with my idol, the person that I look up to the most. And here's where the theatrical and the extended edition, the director's cut, veer way off, because at this point, after the jam session. Guy reaches out to the radio DJ that the wonders were on earlier in the movie. And he says, Hey, do you happen to have any availability for like a job or something? And the DJ said, if you can get me Del Paxton as an interview, I'll get you a job here. And in the director's cut, when Faye says, what are you doing? He explains he's got a job, Mm -hmm. but in the, theatrical version it's completely different he goes i don't know what i'm gonna do because so they pulled all of that extra stuff out and i feel like that should have been in the theatrical movie because that is who he that is the perfect ending to his character guy right i feel like alluding to it in the photo montage at the end was cute 
but seeing it unfold in the movie was more powerful. Right. I gotcha. Yeah. For, for me at the time, this is before I seen the director's cut. I'm like, okay, you're going through the emotions of like, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life now. I thought I had this thing going on. And I'm like, okay, so I understand where you're coming from, guy. I understand the anxieties and stuff like that that you went through and you feel like this is all for nothing. But you still walk away with the girl. So therefore, you're still closing the chapter of your old life and beginning a new life with somebody else. So that's what I got from that. But to pull all that stuff out, you're walking away with more than just the girl. You're walking away with your dreams of being a disc jockey, even and you're being interviewing your idol, and you also get to ride the high horse with the girl that you've been wanting. Mm-hmm. So you're getting all three things into one ending, and it's like I said, it's a perfect story arc for him. Yes, and every character got their perfect story arc, if you think about it. In in True. in that uh Jimmy goes off and becomes famous as he was meant to be. That was where it was written. Uh, you know, Lenny was whatever happened to him. I forgot. It wasn't good. I think he got divorced or was on like several marriages or something. Yeah. Uh, uh, hold on. Then, I got it. I actually have my, I have it in my notes real quick. Oh. If you want. Yeah. It's an epilogue. So it reveals that Jimmy became a record producer. Lenny is a single hotel and casino manager. <laughs> Yeah, there it is. <laughs> in Nevada. There it is. Uh, Basis TB went to war in Vietnam and earned a Purple Heart, then worked in construction mm-hmm. in Orlando, Florida. And, I get, and Guy and Faye are married with four children in uh, Brainbridge Island, Washington, where Guy teaches jazz co- uh, composition at their own music, co- uh, basically their own music studio, basically. Perfect ending to that. Honestly, these characters, they all got paid off, which is why I know we talked about a sequel in the beginning. And as much as I'd love to see one, they really tied it up in a nice bow. And it is a perfect movie for me. The theatrical version, the director's cut is something I enjoy because of the fact I love the original so much. Mm -hmm. And it depends on my mood. I will because I watch this movie at least once a year. And depending on my watch when it comes up for the year, I depending on my mood, I either go for the happy-go-lucky version or the extended version to kind of relive those other scenes a little more. Right, I gotcha. And I think I go through the same process with Almost Famous because there is a bootleg version. Yes. And yes. then there's a theatrical version. And I watched the theatrical cut enough to know what's extended and what's not extended. And some of the stuff, like you said, the exposition on this movie is not so good on some aspects, and it lands some on some of the other ones. But for me, I'm always going to go theatrical when it comes down to Almost Famous. That's just me, because of the fact I've seen the theatrical cut so much, to the point where that's mm-hmm. actually my pull. With this one, it this one lands on both for me, as an extended cut and as a theatrical release as well. They hit differently, slightly mm-hmm. differently. The the feel-good vibe is there. And in the extended version, some payoffs you have to wait longer for. So they're they're kind of, I don't want to say dragged out, but they're kind of left to simmer a little bit more before the payoffs. Mm-hmm. And some of them, that works, like we talked about. But there's some instances where I feel the payoff should have been as simple as it was. And so I almost feel like, I, I to me, a perfect version would be kind of a, cut of the two which i do video editing for a full-time job i should probably consider cutting just my own mix of it that i want to see because 
cutting out the parts I felt were fleshed out too much and leaving in the rest because those extended right. dance sequences to me are, are just wonderful. Right. It puts you in the time period. And matter of fact, I actually said this on my almost famous review too, because, okay, I drive a 2015 uh, Hyundai Sinatra. And whenever I put on almost famous, I'm no longer in that car. I'm actually in a 1970s vehicle. <laughs> yes. So it, whenever I put that soundtrack on, I'm no longer in 2023. I'm in the 1970s with this one. And even though I don't have the soundtrack, whenever I see those girls dancing, I'm no longer in 2023. I'm now in 1950s enjoying yes. this band just as they, as how they enjoy watching this band. And I love it. I have goosebumps right now. Just talking about it. That's how much that I love this film. This film to me, when I tell people it's my favorite, I do get a lot of surprise because it's not a masterpiece of film. It's a wonderfully produced film. The attention to detail is perfect. The attention to music is amazing. This is a love letter to music. And I mm -hmm. am passionate about nothing more than my family. And the number two is music. And to me, music, the love that Tom Hanks put into this movie, I feel that. And that's why I love this movie so much. Same. Is it the best movie ever made? No. But there's no movie that's made me hit stop and feel happier every single time I watch it than this. And it's not a filthy movie. You could watch it with your five-year-old as well as your 90-year-old grandma and still feel the same amount of joy and not a lot of movies can pull that off. There's an innocence no. to it. There's a happiness to it. And there's a joy that a lot of modern movies don't have anymore because it's not meant to be a impactful drama tugging at your heartstrings. It's just supposed to be a happy kind of like documentary, not so much, but it, it is meant to elude feelings of happiness and joy. And not a lot of movies do that in this style anymore. And that's a no, shame. definitely not. I wish they would, though. And that's one thing I liked about this. Like you said, this is like a love letter to music lovers. This is almost famous as a love letter to mu music lovers. And that's why yes. I wanted to I wanted to dedicate this uh, the almost famous episode in this one ep episode to music lovers. Because of the fact, I don't, here's the thing. Whenever I was choosing the films I wanted to review for the month of April, I'm like, I want to do that thing you do. And I want to do Almost Famous because I'm a music lover. I'm a movie lover. And I wanted to pay my respects to people that love music and movies just as much as I do. So that's why I decided to do this. So this is dedicated to the music lovers and movie lovers and people who love soundtracks as well. So Brian, I just want to say, man, this was a great episode i really enjoyed having you here i love listening to your podcast and things like that too and by the way yeah um oh my god i love that um song i need to see that almost famous review you can see it on our youtube channel but if you want to take it on the go you can um that's actually on the audio only podcast as well so you can take that on the go with you and you can enjoy it for that it's only like 47 minutes so it's actually perfect if you want to listen to it on audio. So yeah, go on ahead and check that out. And also to uh, Monday at, at nine o'clock central time, 10 o'clock Eastern time, I'm going to be going live again, but we're going to do the fifth element with my co-host Alex. 
And if you guys love merch, we have merch. We have a merch store if you guys like merchandising and things like that. So make sure you go on and get yourself a T-shirt and things like that, too. We have that. And we have so much stuff that we are going to try and do. Brian's helping me out so much with the Patreon, trying to figure out the angles for me to do. I do appreciate every little thing that you're trying to help me with, Brian, to try and get this thing kicked off. So I do appreciate you. Dude, when when I, I have said that, you know, us indie podcasters, it's a community. We all have to be there and kind of help each other out because at the end of the day, there's no large networks that are no. kind of laying the groundwork for us. So any way that I can help you or my other podcasting friends, it's an absolute pleasure to be able to do that. I love coming on and talking. This is not my wheelhouse talking movies. I'm used to talking music. So <laughs> I was a little nervous coming on tonight, but I, I had a great time. Glad, man. And if people that listen to your show are big music fans, I would love to invite them to come check out what I do over at my weekly mixtape. If that's okay with you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you yeah. could find me at myweeklymixtape.com or you could subscribe to my weekly mixtape, wherever you listen to podcasts, it's on Apple podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, Google, just search my weekly mixtape. And you can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok, all at my weekly mixtape. I am a passionate music person. I love talking music. And what I try to bring out on the show is guests and other people that will enjoy discussing and celebrating the songs that we all love. So thank you for having me on tonight. It was great. And uh, I hope to do it again sometime. Same here, man. Don't be a stranger over here. You're a family now for the movie love tonight. So there you go. Um, I just want to thank, um, oh my God, I love that song. I just want to say thank you for subscribing to the channel. And I hope that you enjoy the content that we have out. Matter of fact, I just released the fast 10 trailer reaction. That's on the channel right now for you guys to enjoy. Uh, enjoy some of my shorts that don't make it into the podcast or anything like that either. So I try to make it a little bit different, a lot more fun. So with that being said, guys, that's going to be it as far as the show goes. Thank you again, Brian, so much. It's been an honor and a privilege to have you on here talking about this movie. And always until next time, guys. Bye-bye.